Welcome to City Church. City Church is a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. Well, this morning we begin our Easter sermon series. Isn't it amazing to think that we're already moving towards Easter? And I'm excited about this season, and I'm excited about this sermon series, and the title of the series is very simple. It's Resurrection. Resurrection. And this morning's sermon is entitled Resurrection Rumors. Resurrection Rumors. As we move towards Easter, there is one thing I would like to make you aware of, and that is this Wednesday evening at City Church Central, I will be teaching what's known as a relational evangelism course. It's one hour from seven to eight, and uh, relational or personal sharing of faith with other people is something that I'm doing on a regular basis and I have a passion and a heart for. And so we've had dozens and dozens of people go through this course over the years. It was really fun to share with, with about 200 of the Chi Alpha leaders on grounds at UVA several weeks ago where I did the class for the leaders of Chi Alpha. And so this is something that I have a passion to do. So if you ever have ever been curious about how to share your faith with other people this Wednesday evening from 7 to 8, I would encourage you to be at City Church Central. As I'm going to do this morning, I'm going to say a fact every single time I preach this resurrection series. And it is this. All four Gospels mention Easter. All four Gospels mention the resurrection, and only two Gospels mention Christmas. Two. And the reason why is Easter or resurrection is the central reality of the Gospel. You would have never heard of Christmas had you not heard of Easter. The other thing that you will notice if you read the Gospels, that up to one half of every one of the Gospels focuses on Jesus moving towards Jerusalem and the Passion Week of his life. So what we have to clearly understand in this resurrection series is that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central reality of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Again, this sermon is entitled Resurrection Rumors. The Cambridge Dictionary says this about the word rumor. An unofficial, interesting story or piece of news that might be true or invented and quickly spreads from person to person. You ever heard of a rumor before? What we're going to discover is that people in the gospel, Jesus' closest friends, his disciples, the actual apostles, in many ways believed that what Jesus had to say to them about his resurrection was nothing more than a rumor. I am also aware that in this sermon, because it's the foundational sermon for this series, I will be reading more scripture. You will be reading it along with me than I would normally bring. But I think it's important that we have a biblical foundation for this sermon series. 
Most of the readings will be taken from the Gospel of Mark. And the reason for that is, as I'm reading through the Bible in a year, I'm following the YouVersion Bible app, one of the apps, one of the reading plans on that app that's entitled Follow Jesus. And it's got me on a reading plan, and I've been reading in the Gospel of Mark. By the way, I would encourage you to download the YouVersion Bible app. If you don't have it, get it. The other cool thing about that app is every Sunday morning, you can click on the events on that app, and my notes are right there. You can literally follow along with every sermon that I preach every Sunday morning. My notes are attached to the City Church event on that app. Now, the first text that I'm going to read is absolutely critical. And the reason why is it's the first time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus mentions his death, burial, and resurrection. It's found in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 33. The text tells us this, and it's where Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. Here's what the scripture tells us. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And then in verse 31, it says this, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when, but when Jesus turned and looked to the, to the disciples, or at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What we need to notice is, is that the moment someone recognized Jesus as the Messiah, the next thing Jesus said was death, burial, resurrection. He did not mention it before, and now he's going to talk about it in a very frequent way. As a matter of fact, the book of Matthew chapter 16 has the same episode and literally says, after Peter recognized he was the Messiah, then Jesus began to tell them frequently that he was going to be dead, buried, and resurrected. Now the text that we just read has a unique context, and context matters. I say that all the time when I preach. Context matters. And the scripture tells us that Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? And he asked the question in a region called Caesarea Philippi. I have been to Caesarea Philippi four times. I have stood literally on the spot in Israel where Jesus asks the question. If you were to go there, I pray someday that you do, you will discover that the spot where Jesus asked this question of his disciples, there is the temple of Augustus Caesar, there is the temple of Zeus, 
There's the court of Nemesis, the goddess of revenge. There's also several temples to the god, the goat god Pan. It's literally right at this spot that Jesus asks the question, who do people say that I am? And when Peter in the book of Matthew says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, Jesus looks at his disciples and says this, Peter, what you just said, that I'm the Messiah, the gates of Hades, the gates of hell cannot prevail against this truth. Now here's what's fascinating. I've got three pictures to show you that I took while I was in Israel. This is actually one of the grottos or the caves where the Greek god Pan was worshipped. Show another slide. In the next slide, here's where some of the other gods were placed. Now show the next slide. This is the gates of Hades. This is literally the cave. It's the headwaters of the Jordan River. This is Caesarea Philippi. This is the cave that the modern people during the time of Jesus literally called the gates of hell. And they believed that this is where the spirit world connected with the world in which they lived. And that out of this cave where all of this water is flowing, they believed that that's where spirits passed back and forth. And because of that, they had all of these temples right in the immediate area where this cave is found. You see, Jesus stood in the middle of the worship of Caesar, in the middle of the worship of all different gods. And he asked the question there, who do people say that I am? That's the context of the question. But Peter responds, you are the Messiah. And as soon as those words are spoken, Jesus instantly begins to teach them that they must go to Jerusalem where Jesus would be killed, he would be executed, but on the third day, he would be raised to new life. Now, there's a couple other things that I think is extremely important to understand. One of them is, when Peter says, you are the Messiah to Jesus, what does that mean? What does it mean? Well, what we know is that in the Older Testament, the Jews are waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for this God-man. They're waiting for this man that will arrive on the scene, and when he does, God will do a new thing. He will turn everything that's wrong and make it right. That there will literally be a new move of God and that whoever this man is, he will live forever and he will rule and reign on David's throne. That's what the prophets had guaranteed them and promised them. So when Peter looks at Jesus and declares, you are the Messiah, it's now a whole new day. A person has now identified Jesus for who he truly is. Please understand this about the word Messiah. The word Messiah is taken from Hebrew. But if you were to take the Hebrew word Messiah and bring it into Greek, you would discover that word is Christos. And if you Romanize that word, it becomes Christ. That's why Jesus is called Jesus Christ, it means Jesus, Messiah. 
And you have to understand that Christ is not his last name. It isn't. It's an office. It's a title. And so whoever met Jesus, when they heard it said of him, he is Jesus Christ, they heard Jesus is the Messiah. Now again, as soon as Peter identifies Jesus as the Christ, the next thing Jesus does is he begins to teach them. And here's what Mark brings to us. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly to them about this. What is interesting to note is we are in chapter 8 of the Gospel of Mark. There are 16 chapters. We are directly halfway through the book, and Jesus is already talking about they are headed to Jerusalem. He will be executed, but on the third day, he will be resurrected from the dead. Halfway through the book, this becomes the focus. Now, what's interesting, though, is that Jesus, whenever he speaks of the resurrection, he gives himself a title. And the title is Son of Man. Every time, Son of Man. Now, the title in the Gospel of Mark of Son of Man, Jesus calls himself that 14 times. In the Gospel, 14 times. If you were to meet Jesus and you would say, hey, my name's Pete Hartwig, he would say, my name is Son of Man. Now, many of us think that means human. It doesn't. Son of Man is actually a prophetic announcement from the book of Daniel chapter 7. Here's where it reads. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Here, Daniel the prophet is speaking in the Older Testament hundreds of years before Jesus was born, and here's what happens. Here's what he says. In my vision at night I looked, and there was before me one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days, which that's a title for God. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And this is what's stunning he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power, and all nations and peoples of every language, next two words, worshipped him. God will not share his worship with anyone but God. And so what the ancient people understood was that was when the Messiah would come, he would be this God-man. And God would share worship with him. He would be a unique person. And then Daniel goes on to say, his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So here's what's fascinating. In the Gospel of Mark, Peter acknowledges Jesus as Messiah. And then, Peter, then Jesus says to Peter and the disciples, what you need to know is, is that the Son of Man will go to Jerusalem, be executed, but on the third day, he will be raised to new life. Guys, you got to know this. 
And if you were to read on in the book of Mark, you would discover Jesus repeats this. In Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 15, we're going to skip a few of the verses, but in the text that brings to us the transfiguration, the gospel of Mark tells us this. After six days, Jesus took Peter, Peter again, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Very simply put, the law of God and the prophets of God now meet Jesus and they hang out together. Verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. It's incredible. Jesus is transfigured, and what he wants to talk about is his resurrection. Well, the disciples aren't sure what that means. So the question has to be asked, what did Jews believe at the time of Jesus about the resurrection? Well, we know that traditional Jews believe that when the Messiah shows up and the temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem, that there will be a great resurrection of all faithful Jews. And they will take part in inhabiting Jerusalem and Israel with the Messiah. That's what traditional Jews believe. Not only this, that if you read the Mishnah, which is sort of the companion book to the Torah, to the Older Testament, we know that Jews believe and are challenged to believe in the resurrection. In fact, the Mishnah states this, that if you don't believe in the resurrection, you have no share in the world to come. Not only this, but every traditional Jew recites a prayer three times a day, and it includes a blessing praising God as the resurrector of the dead. So what we know is resurrection was something that many Jews believed. But we also know at the time of Jesus, there were two different religious leaderships. One were the Sadducees, the other the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. The old pastoral pun is, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, they were fair, you see, and the Sadducees did not. They were sad, you see. Lame, I know, but it proves the point. But you see, resurrection was a theological principle. It's something the disciples knew about. And yet when Jesus began to speak about it for himself, they could not figure out what he meant. Reading on again in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 32, the gospel literally tells us Jesus predicts his death a second time. Here's what the gospel says. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not anyone want anyone to know they were there because he was teaching his disciples. So he wants a private audience with just his disciples. What does he teach them? He said to them, the, what's the title? Son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant were afraid to ask him about it. Then Mark chapter 10, verse 32. 
Jesus begins to speak about the resurrection again. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. Verse 33, we are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Reading on more, Mark chapter 14, verses 27 through 29. When Jesus predicts Peter's denial, verse 27 says, You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. You got to love Peter. But notice, Jesus literally says to them, I'm going to rise from the dead and I'm going to go ahead of you into Jerusalem. And then the Gospel of Matthew fills in a couple of other things. In Matthew chapter 27, we discover that it wasn't just Jesus' disciples that knew what he was saying. Because when Jesus had been executed and placed in a tomb, Matthew 27, 62 tells us this. The next day the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, now catch this. We remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. Everyone knew it. Everyone knew what Jesus had been teaching. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. And then the Gospel of Luke colors it in just a little bit more. Jesus is dead, buried, and it's on the day of his resurrection. Luke 24, 5 through 8. When the women are at the tomb, Scripture says, in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, these were angels, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. What I'm trying to show you is that whenever Jesus had the chance, whenever there was a big event, Jesus would pull his disciples aside and he would teach them over and over and over. We're going to go to Jerusalem. I will be killed. I will be crucified. But on the third day, the Son of Man will be raised to new life. I will be resurrected. Now, when I was reading through this text, and I was looking through this again for City Church, I was drawn back to close out this sermon to the original story that I read when the disciples met with Jesus at Caesarea Philippi. Peter looks at Jesus and says, you're the Christ, 
You're the Messiah. And immediately Jesus tells them about his death, burial, and resurrection. But verse 33 of Mark 8 tells us this, that Jesus rebukes Peter, calls him Satan, literally wakes him up. Can you imagine Jesus looking at you and saying, get behind me, Satan? And then here's what he says next. Jesus says to Peter, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. As I read that verse, I felt like that was a challenge for all of us. Because this is why Peter missed the idea of the resurrection. You see, Jesus rebukes Peter, and the scripture says, and you read it with me earlier, Peter took Jesus to the side, had a little sidebar, and rebuked him. Jesus, you're not doing that. All this death stuff, you're freaking me out, man. Don't do it. So he rebukes Jesus. And the scripture says that Jesus rebukes Peter, but looks at the disciples. It's literally what it says. So Jesus looks at Peter, and then he turns to the disciples. He says, get behind me, Satan. I picture Jesus turning around. Now Peter's behind him, and he literally looks at all the disciples. And what does he say? You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. In other words, that warning, that challenge, isn't just for Peter. It's for anyone who considers themselves a follower of Jesus. It's for anyone who would listen to Christ, who would listen to the Messiah. Here's why. Peter missed what Jesus was trying to say about the resurrection. The disciples missed what Jesus was trying to say about the resurrection because their minds were not on the concerns of God, but on human concerns. What does that mean? What does that mean for you and for me? And what did it mean for the disciples? Well, it means this. It means, hey, Peter. Peter, your concerns are on the stuff of man. In other words, the reason why you can't get your head around the resurrection is because, Peter, your focus, your attention, your concern is on this temporal, physical, tactile world. Peter, your concerns are about the immediate human realities. Jesus is saying to Peter and to the disciples that he's challenging and to you and to me that if he's going to make sense, that if Jesus truly is the Christ, we're going to have to let go and begin to view life differently. You see, Peter, you're still looking at things as they're all human, as though they're all natural, is they're all material. And if you live life that way, the resurrection and the importance of it will miss you. You won't get it. And I get concerned because we live in an intellectual, 
scientific city. Oftentimes, the pull is to be more Charlottesvillian than it is to be Christian. But what we must understand is that the central reality of Jesus is his death, burial, and resurrection. And if we live all of our lives in the things that are concerns of men, and we never shift our view and our thinking and our trust and our faith and our belief towards the things that concern God, then the resurrection will miss us. Jesus will be nothing more than a great way to live your life a good example, and a good teacher. He's far more than that. He is God in the flesh who is resurrected from the dead. Listen, I know it's a challenge, but if we're going to follow Jesus, then our trust, our hope, our faith, and our belief must be, our minds must be placed upon the things that concern God. In other words, yes, there's a physical world. No, we're not called to ignore it. But we're also called to realize there is a parallel spiritual world. And as followers of Jesus, that spiritual world preempts the natural physical one. And that's why Peter and the disciples could not grasp what Jesus was trying to tell them. How do we put feet to our faith with this? We put feet to our faith very simply, recognizing and believing the following. First, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the God-man that the entire Older Testament is searching for and promising and prophesying about. Second, Jesus Christ, Christ means resurrection. To believe in Jesus means that we believe in the resurrection of Christ. Next is to admit that up to half of every gospel focuses on the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Next is to know that Easter is all about the resurrection, and I'll say it again. Easter is the point not Christmas. I know that bums you out, but Easter is the point. If it had not been for Easter, you would have never heard of Christmas. Would you stand with me as we close? As we stand together, I'm going to encourage you to take a moment and close your eyes in God's presence. I'm going to trust as we now begin to worship together that the presence of the resurrected Christ will begin to move among us, touching our hearts and touching our lives. If you are a person who's been checking out faith, I think it's so important to realize that if we're constantly focused on the concerns of men and we don't allow by faith for our our attention and our focus to be looked upon and to view through the concerns of God, we will miss the resurrection of Jesus. So I want to encourage you as we begin to worship that you would focus on 
the resurrected Christ. He is not dead. He is risen, just as he said.